Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 78, Revelation, Locusts from the Abyss. And in this episode, we're going to look at Revelation 8, 13 through chapter 9, verse 12. And as you are reading through the book, this may very well be one of the strangest sections in the book, at least that we've come to so far, and arguably one of the strangest in the entire book. But what we ought to always do when we're reading the book of Revelation is to use more scripture, not less, in our attempt to grasp what John is trying to communicate. And so unlike many popular um, ideas floating around about what these horses prepared for battle might look like with these locusts and other sorts of things, what I plan to do is to take us into the Gospels, to the teachings of Jesus, and then into the letters of Paul to help us once again grasp the meaning that John intends to communicate to us through these verses. And so I hope to make things as clear as I possibly can, and I hope to pastor you faithfully through these verses, not just so that you know what they say, but that so you understand your place um, and how these verses are here as both an encouragement to you and as an explanation for you about what is actually taking place in our world. And so I offer this uh, episode to you um, this week on the podcast for us to attempt to understand these locusts from the abyss. Let's just get right into it. As we begin this week's episode, allow me just to read, as is my pattern, the passage that I intend to discuss, beginning with Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. Here's what John tells us. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, He is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, in my opinion, 
Um, the passage that I just read you is the strangest one we've come across so far in Revelation. And so if after hearing me read it out loud just now, you too thought, wow, that's weird. Just know that you're not alone. And yet, even with that said, it's important to remember that the book of Revelation is just that. It's a revelation. It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so it may sound strange to us when we first encounter it, but John's point in writing was not to confuse us. His point actually was just the opposite. His point was to clarify reality, to pull off the veil so that we could see the world as it truly is and not how we typically perceive it. So there are realities going on all the time, and we might not fully grasp them if the categories we are working with are skewed in any way. And so John is here trying to restructure our categories. Thankfully, though, he doesn't leave it up to us to figure things out on our own. Instead, John consistently inserts helpful phrases into these visions that connect for us statements that he's already made in other contexts. And so if we just take a step back from the strange otherworldly descriptions and put on hold for the moment, trying to figure out what it all means, then we will notice that even in this passage, there are clues given to us that help explain exactly what's going on. And so I would like to start with those clues first. And once we get those clues sorted out and our categories rightly structured, then we will be able to figure out what it all means. And so the first thing I want you to notice is that the woes that are about to be unleashed, the first of which is our passage, the fifth trumpet judgment, are said to be directed toward those who dwell on the earth from verse 13 in chapter 8. Now, this phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is a phrase we've come across before in Revelation. You might remember to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus promised to keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth, Revelation 3.10. And if you remember back to episode 61, Revelation, Pillars in the Temple, I pointed out that to keep from the hour of trial does not mean to remove these believers from the trial. Rather, it means that God will sustain them in the midst of the trial. Right. And it is those who dwell on the earth that do not have this promise. Those who dwell on the earth are not privileged to have Jesus' presence with them during their trials. And so Jesus promises to provide these faithful Philadelphian Christians with what they will need to enable them to endure the hour of trial. And here's what we're told in Revelation 3.12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And so these believers will have God's name written on them as well as Jesus's own name. Now, we looked at this too, with what this written name and what this actually refers to. We, we looked at this in episode 72, Revelation, the sealed servants of God. 
In order to help us make sense of what it might mean for the servants of God to be sealed on their foreheads, we made this connection to the church in Philadelphia. Those who have the name of God and the name of Jesus written on them are those who have the seal of God written on their foreheads. As Revelation 7.3 and Revelation 14.1 make clear, and I would encourage you on your own time to go reread both of those passages. Now, the reason I'm reminding you of all this here is because only a few verses into the description of this fifth trumpet judgment, this first woe from Revelation 9, our passage right here today, we're told that the locusts that are unleashed from the bottomless pit can harm, verse 4, only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, those who dwell on the earth and those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads are the same group of people. And the judgments being unleashed here affect only these people. So again, this phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is Revelation's way of referring to those whose citizenship is defined by life here on earth. Now, I'm not sure how familiar some of you are with end times thinking. Some of you who listen into this, who didn't even grow up in the church, this might not mean anything to you. But if others of you who listen in grew up hearing some of the same views of the end times that I grew up hearing, um, might have heard of something called the rapture. Um, and the idea being that there is a point at which Jesus will come and take the Christians out of this world before the great tribulation comes and, and begins. And I've spoken against that a number of times. And the reason I choose to do that is, again, because of the themes that are surfacing in this particular episode. But there, there simply is no secret rapture in the theology of the book of Revelation at all. Um, those who dwell on earth, as it's worded here, is not a reference to those who are left here after the Christians are taken up to heaven to be with Jesus. Um, that kind of thinking is simply entirely foreign to the book of Revelation. Um, and, it, and it saddens me, really, when many people speak with such confidence and such vehemence about these doctrines when the reality is they just literally do not appear at all in the book of Revelation. And so for you who are simply following along, I'm not going to assume anything about what you think or don't think regarding a rapture or what you think about the theology of Revelation. Let me just assure you, and you can find this out for yourself, that that doctrine just does not appear anywhere in the book. And so I'm not going to be among those who tries to force it to fit because I think John has um, a good head on his shoulders and is here to lead us in the right way. And I don't think we need to insert the idea that those who dwell on earth are somehow people who've been left behind after the rapture. No, rather, according to Revelation, those who dwell on the earth are those whose hearts are gripped by the kingdoms of this world, who set their hearts and their desires on treasures on earth. They lack the seal of God's name on their hearts and lives. And as a result, they do not attach their identity or their sense of self in any way to God or to Christ. In other words, they are citizens of this world. In contrast then to those who dwell on the earth, the book of Revelation portrays Christians as the exact opposite. 
The book of Revelation portrays Christians as those who dwell in heaven. And it's here that we come to understand how so much of the New Testament speaks about spiritual reality. Listen to Revelation 13, 6 through 8. The beast opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth who will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, these three verses are packed with meaning, but all I want to do is point out one thing to you right here, and it's this. Verse 6 says that the beast blasphemes God's name and God's dwelling. Interesting choice of words, actually, especially in light of the fact that when describing those who stand in opposition to God, John uses the same word dwell to refer to them, those who dwell on the earth. But then John goes on to explain precisely what he means by God's dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Okay, so God's dwelling, the place where God lives, is those who dwell in heaven, right? And this is why all through the New Testament, we hear things like this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Paul speaking to Christians in Corinth in the letter of, the, of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 or into his second letter to the same church. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Or to the church in Ephesus, Paul says, In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then to the Philippian Christians, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, each of the verses that I just cited are present realities for Christians. These are not statements of what will be true of Christians someday. No, they are present. You are God's temple. You are being built together. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the entire New Testament is written both to explain how Jesus brought this new reality about and to exhort us to faithfully live our lives in light of this in the present. Jesus has brought in a new age. And despite the fact that we don't see that new age fully realized in our world today, we are meant to live out the heavenly reality Jesus brought while we live our lives here. In Revelation's language, those who dwell on the earth have no category for this kind of thing. What they see is all they think is real. Their decisions are based in this world's way of thinking. They're concerned first and foremost with life in this world. And they find that the things they set their hearts on lead quite literally to destruction and death. And the reason they do is because there is a God of this world, Paul tells the, sec to, tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. According to Paul, these unbelievers do not see the light because they are living in the darkness. In fact, even Jesus had something to say to this issue. Here are his words. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 3, 19 to 21. And so what John, or I'm sorry, what Jesus and what Paul want us to understand here is that the God of this world, the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And Jesus connects for us that that blindness, that preventing people from seeing the light, is people actually enjoy this because they love the darkness and prefer the darkness to the light because their works are evil. And so in blinding the minds of unbelievers, the God of this world convinces them that God himself is a harsh judger of their actions and that he is waiting with bated breath to strike them down for their crimes. And so he encourages people to keep hidden the things they've done that they know would warrant judgment. Jesus comes and says the opposite. The bondage you find yourselves in is the result of your own choices. God sent me not to condemn you for those choices, but to set you free from the bondage those choices have created. In order to be set free, though, you simply need to bring the things you've done into the light. The battle is raging then in the hearts of every person on the planet as to whether they will choose to embrace the light by having it shine onto their own darkness or keep their darkness to themselves and carry on with life as usual. And this battle that I think is actually raging, this battle that these locusts are very much a part of in Revelation 9, according to Paul in Ephesians 6, this battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against human to human. That's not what this battle is, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The battle, according to Jesus in John 10, is with the thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. This destroyer then, this enemy, the one we are warring against, is the evil one and every spiritual force he is responsible for unleashing on the world. He has enslaved humanity and every one of us are in need of rescue. This is ultimate reality. And it's why I pointed out in episode 35, Why Does the Servant Suffer?, that Jesus was able to offer forgiveness to those responsible for hanging him on the cross because he could hear in their accusations and mockery of him the exact same words used by the devil himself during Jesus' wilderness temptations. And so Jesus knows, as does Paul, that people have been captured by the devil to do his will, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.26. And as a result, 
they need to be set free. They are in darkness and they need the light. They're being destroyed and they need restored. They are in bondage and they need to be set free. Now, I bring all of this up not just because I feel like going on a rant today or I feel like talking about all of these intricacies of the Christian faith, which, as a side note, I do enjoy talking about because I don't think we're, be, we're talking about these things enough today. But the reason I bring them up in this episode is because these are the categories we need to be thinking in. Darkness and light, bondage, captivity, torment, destruction, the whole nine yards. And by bringing these categories up to you here... I'm trying to help you restructure your thinking by highlighting the way that the New Testament speaks about ultimate reality. I'm doing this to help you hear what John is saying in Revelation 9 with new ears, perhaps. He who has an ear, Jesus has repeatedly said, let him hear. So we know that there is protection offered to those who are in Christ to those who are sealed servants of God, sealed with his name and Jesus' name on their foreheads. That same protection is not given to those who dwell on the earth. And in the fifth trumpet judgment of Revelation 9, we are given a picture of what this lack of protection actually looks like. Let me repeat that. In the fifth trumpet judgment of Revelation 9, you and I are given a picture of what this lack of protection actually looks like. Verse 1 tells us that an angel is given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. In other words, someone who holds authority over what resides there. From that shaft comes smoke that darkens everything. And from the smoke come locusts on the earth. Now, locusts throughout the Old Testament were one way of seeing tremendous destruction come upon a people in their land. The eighth plague in Egypt, for example, was of locusts, and they completely destroyed all traces of vegetation. So the locusts in Revelation 9, however, according to verse 4, were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Locusts that don't harm the vegetation? Locusts that come from the dark smoke of the bottomless pit? Locusts that torment only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads? Locusts that are prepared for battle and have crowns of gold on their heads, human faces, and are fully equipped with lion's teeth? Locusts that sting like scorpions? Locusts that have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is called Apollyon? Do you see what's going on here? The words Abaddon and Apollyon both mean destroyer, and the one who comes to destroy is the devil. We are told that he is the king of these locusts. He's their ruler, the one in authority, the one who has come to steal and kill and destroy. And this is exactly what he's doing. He unleashes this torment, we are told, for five months. And like so many of the numbers in the book of Revelation, I suggest not taking this time period literally. 
Instead, consider, if you will, that the Lord withdrew his protective presence that separated the waters above from the waters below when the flood of Noah's day came upon the earth. Genesis 7.11 tells us that the foundations of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened on the 17th day of the second month. And then in Genesis 8.4, we're told that after the waters began to subside, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th day of the seventh month, exactly five months later. And so this destruction, if you will, this judgment was brought on by the Lord withdrawing his protective hand and allowing creation to return to its pre-creation state, a chaotic place unfit for human habitation, and that this destruction lasted for five months. I think something similar is happening in Revelation 9. Without God's seal of protection... Without his name written on their foreheads, without his thoughts governing their hearts and minds and souls, people are at the mercy of whatever the evil one, the destroyer, wishes to do to them. And he torments the minds and souls of those who dwell on the earth, who lack the seal of God's name on their thoughts and lives. We see this all through the Gospels demonic oppression bent on causing people to harm themselves physically or isolating them socially or confusing them mentally or crippling them emotionally. And this torment is coming from the inside through the presence of the evil one and the various spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is torment, not to be confused, I think, with torture, And Joshua Ryan Butler, in his fantastic book, The Skeletons in God's Closet, puts it this way. Torment and torture are two very different things. I can be tormented by a headache, or someone can torture me by hitting me repeatedly over the head with a two-by-four. Both hurt my head, but in radically different ways. Torment arises internally. Torture is inflicted from the outside. Now, that kind of torment inflicted by these locusts then is absolutely agonizing. Agony. It brings about a state of emotional turmoil rather than a description, I think, of physical harm. And yet I might add here that internal emotional turmoil is oftentimes more destructive and damaging than something merely external. And this is what Jesus recognizes is going on in the world when he sees people whose lives are being destroyed. They are being destroyed by the enemy whose tormenting scorpion stings wreak havoc in the lives of people and cause them to act in ways that bring further destruction to their own lives and to the lives of others. And so Jesus invites his followers into this battle with him, sharing his authority with them so that they might do battle in these interior places of people's souls right along with him. And here's what Luke 10 tells us happened when the disciples returned from one such, vent, from one such um, task of venturing out to join Jesus in setting people free. 
We're told in verse 17 of Luke 10, Then the seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I can think of no other passage that sheds more light on Revelation 9 than this one. Listen to how many similarities there are between what we just read in Luke 10 and what we find in Revelation 9. Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus giving his disciples authority to tread on scorpions. Jesus giving his disciples authority over all the power of the enemy. And then Jesus encouraging his followers to rejoice most that their names are written in heaven. Or as we saw from Revelation 13, that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Names written in heaven and names written in the Lamb's book of life are the exact same thing. And so what we see in Revelation 9 is that our enemy, the enemy of our souls, is a destroyer. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Is it any wonder then that the locusts described in Revelation 9 have teeth like lion's teeth? This enemy, the devil, he's real. And he is fueled by the darkness and by the torment he is able to inflict on the souls of unbelievers through keeping them in their darkness. He produces anxiety in the hearts of his captives continually encouraging them to grasp for security everywhere but from God. In fact, when Peter pens the words, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, he has recently spoken about the anxiety that believers face and when they are anxious to cast that anxiety on the Lord because the Lord cares for them. This, of course, is also why Jesus says to the heavy laden and to the weary that he will give them rest if they will come to him. He offers his easy yoke and light burden to those who are weighed down with the cares of this world and offers to set them free from the things that are enslaving them. The enemy, meanwhile, is tormenting people through the very same cares and concerns. He has come to destroy them like a tormenting plague of scorpion locusts rising from the bottomless pit. Jesus, on the other hand, has come to give people life. And as we continue to see throughout this Revelation series, how attached we find ourselves to things that are rooted in the kingdoms of this world will be in direct proportion to how upset we become when those things fail us or when those things are taken from us. And if I might say, all the world's a stage right now for this very thing. The presence of the coronavirus is revealing where everyone in this world finds their security. And there's nothing quite like a pandemic to identify for us where we actually turn to help alleviate our anxieties. But I can tell you this, the destroyer, the enemy of our souls, 
is using the coronavirus to torment many people in our world right now. Fear and panic have gripped the hearts of millions. Questions of what if are flooding social media. And criticisms, blame shifting, and grasping for control are pouring forth from the lips of people, not unlike the locust-infested black smoke rising from the bottomless pit. Having the seal of God on our foreheads, though, ought to produce a different response in the lives of Christians. One that is not ruled by the fear of death, but rather by Jesus' resurrection life. And so when you see others responding poorly to this pandemic, as you undoubtedly will, and as you no doubt already have, whether through selfishness or fear or anger or anxiety or a strange combination of all of them, ask Jesus to help you see them as captives of the enemy, as captives of the destroyer, as captives of the one who is being sought after like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and then begin to pray for them and treat them as such, as people who are being hunted down by a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. These locusts from the abyss, this dark shadow and dark covering that is cast over all things is the enemy of our souls and every demonic influence and presence that seeks to attach itself to our hearts and lives and ruin people's lives. This is exactly what Revelation 9 is portraying. And it is contrasting this viewpoint with those who have their hearts and minds sealed with the presence of God, who is here to protect us and to sustain us and to reorient our thinking or to transform our thinking into such a way that we begin to model the thinking that Jesus embodied when he walked the earth so that we do not succumb to the same anxiety-ridden and, you know, um, uh, cares that just seem to infest our world and cause people to become discouraged and and hateful and mean-spirited and selfish toward one another. The enemy is out to capitalize on things like the coronavirus in an attempt to destroy human lives. And the Christians need to be among those who at times like this recognize what is actually happening in the world and know how to speak with Jesus's truth and Jesus's presence into a world that desperately needs something other than the darkening, abysmal, um, damaging and destructive effects that the enemy seeks to unleash on the world. And so I am, that is all the the, that I have to share with you for this week on the episode. I do thank you for continuing to tune in. I would love to receive more feedback from you, receive ratings or reviews on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on. That is very helpful, and I have received a few of those in the past several weeks, and I'm very grateful for those who've offered that. Thank you again for those who found me on Facebook or have reached out via Instagram or something like that, and if struck up conversations. It's been a real joy to be able to interact with you in that way. 
And I do thank you to my supporters for your faithful financial giving each month to support what I'm trying to do here and and giving us the Bible in the best way I understand it to uh, let us be faithful followers of Jesus in a world that desperately needs to see him um, you know, lived out faithfully in, in real time. So thank you so much for continuing to tune in. Please be safe out there. Make wise decisions. And I will see you next time. Have a great week.